Frenchie Cannoli's legendary life came to an end on July 18th. Recognized worldwide as an evangelist for hashish, he was also a throwback to another era when adventurers trekked the Himalayas in search of ancient wisdom. Having him on my podcast was one of my career highlights. We honor his life as we rerun this classic light culture episode from January 2020. R.I.P. Frenchie Cannoli. Hi, my name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Frenchie Cannoli's time has come. Today, the world's most prominent hash maker, he ran away from home at 17 to embark on a quest to learn as much as possible about the cannabis derivative from the people who have been practicing the craft for thousands of years. From his home in Nice, France, hence Frenchie, to the then uncharted territories of Asia and the Middle East, going from village to village to learn as much about the ancient practice that enchanted him with its seductive powers. Trekking along the way, he met his wife, Mrs. Cannoli, an American, and moved to Northern California's Emerald Triangle when she got pregnant in the mid-90s. To understand the Cannoli connection, you'll have to listen to the podcast. With the green rush fully in effect, Frenchie has put his knowledge to good use. He has become a powerful advocate for the rights of the farmers of Mendocino, Humboldt, and Trinity counties, whose sweat equity continues to produce, by his estimation, the best flower in the world thanks to the hard work, genetics, and microclimate of the terroir. Terroir is a French term used in the wine industry to describe the taste and flavor imparted by the environment which grows a particular grape. He thinks the Emerald Triangle is deserving of similar protection and branding, yet it struggles to survive as Big Agris swoops down on cannabis. Frenchie's mission is to spread the word about the ancient art form he has mastered by holding workshops on the lost art of the hashishin. As he talks you through the process, you can feel yourself going back in time to the ancient history of the plant that has become his life's work. Mrs. Cannoli joins us as we time travel from the ancient days of yesteryear to today's cannabis revival, looking for answers to long-forgotten questions. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, today to this episode of Light Culture. I'm honored to have as my guest today the legendary Frenchie Cannoli. And even more importantly, perhaps, is uh, Mrs. Cannoli is, is joining <laughs> with us here, like the 40-year partner of Frenchie. So, Frenchie, I know you, might, you must have been asked this a million times, but I have to do it as well. How did you get that name, Cannoli? <laughs> I know Frenchie. <laughs> I can guess on that. Cannoli, it's because for a while, when I was pressing my, uh, my ash, I was making patties of it. And instead of making a temple ball, I was rolling it in a loose form of a cannoli. 
to be able to dry it a little bit further to be sure of my drying and then I would make a, a temple ball of it. And uh, the name stick and I like it because I'm Italian uh, origin and uh, it was it was nice to be able to in my uh, nom de guerre to have the two side of my uh, culture. <laughs> Yes, and, and I even neglected to mention, but I'm sure most of our audience already understands that Frenchie is like uh, a master of uh, the art of, of making hashish, or what do you call it, cooking it, or how would you talk about uh, what the process it's making, is? It's, uh, making it's a, pro, it's a very simple process. You, uh, you shake the plant so that the trichon gland fall, and you do it in a way so that you don't, make uh, material contaminant with it and then you press it with the source of it and if you age it it gets better actually like uh, like wine it's very much like wine you uh, you get a, a product f from the plant and you transform it into something that is hopefully greater than what you receive from the plant and is this something that's done manually only are they modernizing it today because it looks like a very labor-intensive process. It is a very labor-intensive process and even now with, uh, with machinery, but you can reach a level of producing quality in a, in a new dimension. When I was young, I would spend every year three, four months in a producing place deep in a region to make my own stash for the year. And it would take me three, four months to make two kilos of ash. Now I can do that in a, in a week with a machine uh, with a machine I have. And you feel like the quality is the same? Or? The quality is the same. Otherwise, I wouldn't use the machine. <laughs> I, they, have okay. been, they have been custom designed for me. So uh, mm. it's like I'm... Uh, it's fascinating to be able to... Uh, to reach that point where you can you can actually produce the quality I was making when I was a kid that was my stash it would have never been for sale now I can share that with a lot more people it's it's pretty rewarding well in fact you're here in New York for a lost art of hashishin conference or or it's a, it's a workshop it's, it's a workshop a, I I teach what I do I share my knowledge. And can people get the equipment as well? Is that something they purchase? The equipment can be very simple. It can be just a little uh, mini washer uh, that costs $50. Oh, my God. It's like the... <laughs> you, you can literally collect the resin on your hand like I was doing in a mountain in India. So it's like it's pretty basic. The more tech you bring into it, the more optimization of the of the principle goes on. That means that you can collect more in a shorter time. So part of what we're doing, because so many people now are in states where they're allowed to grow six to eight plants for their own personal use, so it's kind of like when you have your tomatoes and you can them to be able to enjoy them throughout the year, you can get this mini washer for, like Frenchie said, about $50, and using a very simple process with water, create your own hashish, and then when you press it, it goes through a process that's called a decarboxylation, which makes it shelf-stable. So you could literally have your your own hash storage and age it for years and years, just like a fine wine cellar. So if you were making your own beer in your basement or wine 
It's a very similar, easy process. So this is what we're trying to share through our workshops that we've been doing now for about five years. And so tell me, how did you get involved with this now since you... <laughs> well, Frenchie and I have been together for 40 years. Yeah, we met uh, trekking in Nepal. Oh, so you uh, about, were trekking at this as well? We ran into each other in Nepal and then um, ran into each other further kind of randomly four or five times in India and uh, started to feel like the universe was trying to say something. That's right. It wasn't so <laughs> random. Maybe it wasn't random after And all. Uh, ended up traveling together in Asia for a long time and um, then ultimately came to the U.S. about 20 years ago. And you were there for what purpose? Uh, so I was there actually on vacation. I was uh, in university in Japan, and I was studying um, Buddhist culture. So I was visiting uh, various countries in Asia where they had, you know, the traditional Buddhist culture. And, uh, yeah, I ran into Frenchie, and the rest is history. Definitely. Well, I'm old enough to remember those days as well when people were going trekking in that part of the world, and it was very unexplored and one of the things that they would bring back would be the hashish that you could find there and certainly in, in the U.S., which was rare to, to get. So that was always a thing. But today that's like pretty much over, right? Is that still something you think people can do or has it all been like overrun and discovered? And- it, it is overrun and it has been discovered again and again. But I do remember the first time I went to India, people telling me that that was Over. it was already too late <laughs> and it definitely wasn't so now i met people coming back from india from remote valley in the himalaya that are really dearest to me and i know the changes they build up seven dams on that river so the changes must have been really great to a, a high level but i could see in the eyes of the person the, the same love and uh, how can I say that? How much you receive from a place when uh, when you say like the, the value of the gift of the place to the visitor is still really huge and uh, and great. The only thing it's for me to go back there would be really hard. It's like there is places in the world where we wouldn't go back anymore because it's I don't want to change the memory of that place basically. So it's it's still on it's just different and you have to go further to get lost really i think we lived in a really charmed age when frenchy was going he was living in a remote cave at eight thousand feet and uh hand rubbing concentrate which is called charas in india and nepal over the course of the season with wild plants so this is kind of an experience that's really special, that's probably hard to replicate in the, this day and age. Yeah, it was a very, very special period of time to be traveling in and, that area. And do you go back? At, at no, but now I reach a stage where I travel for uh, basically 18 solid years, from 18 to 30 to 36. That's all I did. I didn't even go back home. The only things I really needed is to be in a place where I didn't know nothing and everything was new. You, your awareness built up to a level because you have to absorb all those new data. And it became like a, like a drug. You need that much de- input in your life to feel truly uh, alive. And beyond that, I would have given anything for traveling, even smoking. 
But since I didn't have to do that, a lot of my traveling were was spending a lot of time with local Ashishin in different countries. And even if I didn't go there to learn, I was learning because I was working alongside those people with their own tool for months in a row. And now that I am teaching, I had to learn how much I knew for a start, which was really strange. And... The whole knowledge that I acquire here, it's mostly the understanding of what I learn in this producing country and the science behind this tech that I couldn't get from the farmer. In, in a producing country, if you ask a local, why does you cure and dry your flower for so long? Why do you press for it? They will tell you because it makes the resin better, because it makes good hashish. They know it's better but they don't understand the principle behind that makes this happen. So now I reach a stage where actually people in a country I visited want me to go back and teach them, which is the best reward I could. It's like when you, when you close the loop, the circle, basically. When the student becomes the teacher. <laughs> well, and I think for us here, you know, we lucked out in that when we came to the States, we came to California, we came to Northern California, which in the world, you know, we have the Emerald Triangle there with Mendocino, Trinity, and Humboldt County is the source of some of the best cannabis in the planet in terms of the terroir, just the natural environment to grow it. And there's generations of families there that have been cultivating and caring for certain plants and strains within their family. So it's a really great thing for us now to be able to work directly with those small outdoor organic farmers and produce the hashish from their plants, especially also as things open up, working with scientists to help us understand better the plant that we're working with that we couldn't do before. Nobody understood because the scientists were afraid to work with the plant as a Schedule One drug. Didn't the uh, the seeds that come from that part of the world, like Asia at, uh, originally, that went to the uh, Northern California, it sort of changed the game on the kind of cannabis that's grown in, in uh, the U.S.? Because that's sort of the legend that I know. Everything you have here comes from producing countries of genetic. It's just that the microclimate that there is in, uh, in Northern California and generation of growing every year created heirloom genetics that are very specific to Northern California. And there is some amazing breeder. I, I, I had never made ash like I, I make up in a mountain. It's, in India, you have field of fruit, you have field of many, many, many different terpene profiles. And at the end of the day, in your hand, you don't have the smell of the field. You don't have the smell of individual plant. You have, the, you have something that is different, that is the wholeness of what you collected on, uh, on that day. And it changed from places to places. In California, I can have just banana, strawberry. It's like I have, it's like biting the fruit, chocolate. It's beyond any experience I ever had in 18 years in producing country. In producing country, you have 
half a dozen flavors. Marocain, Libanese, Middle East, like Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Afghani, Paki, Pakistani. Then you have India and Nepal. And in India, you have a little change because from valley to valley and from field to field, actually, you can feel the difference. That's the first time that I actually experienced cannabis terroir. But you don't have that exclusive one terpene profile that you get with the genetics that have been breeded in, uh, in Northern California. It's, for a ash maker, it's every new cultivar, it's literally stepping in a new ash producing country because I'm creating something that I had never made before. Cool. So why did you come back, essentially? Was there a particular reason that you wanted to come back to the, or to the, not back to the U.S. because you weren't really American at that time? Um, You're American. I'm American. We had a daughter who needed to be educated. (laughs) (laughs) So the simple reason is that um, the main reason was to uh, have her educated. And what year was that? So it was around uh, 1990. 95, so it was around that time when the medical marijuana in California... In California exactly. But I, uh, I wasn't into the industry at all until my daughter was 20. Pro- why? To protect her to or protect your, her. and the family? I didn't want anything to, uh, to come between uh, our relation. We knew people who had... Um, teachers had interviewed the kids and found out the parents were mm. consuming cannabis and called social services, and the children were taken from the families um, back when the, in the day when the war on drugs was still very, very active, and there was a strong feeling that children shouldn't be in households where cannabis was consumed. So we just didn't want to take any risk. You know, we didn't, it, it's just not worth exposing a child to the need to visit parents in, in prison. Oh, yes, I agree. So I, I, I did smoke. The only person who knew I smoked was my wife and my dealer. <laughs> and you'd leave the house and you'd have to yeah I, I smoke outside and my outside. daughter she didn't realize I was smoking until she was 18 years old and how did, what happened then when she realized she went it? to a party at <laughs> university and she smelled people smoking and you know asked them what was up and uh, she made the connection <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> that smells like daddy's cigarettes <laughs> oh I see it's very cool and so uh, and today when you do these uh workshops, who are the students? Who comes? Who wants to learn this? Is, is it like people in the industry? It's a wide variety. It's we get a, yeah, it's a people wide variety, in the industry. Yeah. We get people who really just want to process for their own personal use. We get people who are curious about the process and they watch Frenchie do it and then they think, oh, this is too complicated. I actually don't want to do this. I'll well, just... it's beautiful. I saw the uh, one of the episodes of Vice, I guess, where you're actually making it and mm-hmm. it's such a beautiful process. And when you watch it, it's like a dance and then you're <laughs> like, well, how could I dance like that? I don't, I, think, I don't think I can do it as well, I'm sure. I think there's something very primordial in terms of human attraction for hashish because if you think about it, our biology actually goes back to a common source. Our endocannabinoid system and the, the structure of the plant, there's a, there's a relation there. There's a deep relation there. So I think for a lot of people, even if you're not a consumer, when you see beautiful resin, somehow you have a natural affinity to that. You know that there's a common goodness that 
it unites us way back in in our original origin. Well, Frenchie, you talk about that in, in some of the uh, videos that I've seen going back, you know, thousands of years to the history. And I think you make the connection, don't you, between the birth of the human and cannabis I'm, I'm in some actually way? Wo- uh, working on it. The cannabis plant was born 28 million years ago in Tibet, on the Tibetan plateau uh, towards, uh, towards China. And six million years ago, it was in Europe. It, so it's like six million years ago, the plant was from the Tibetan plateau to Europe. That means that the first Homo genus that left Africa, Homo erectus, two million years ago, when he enters the Levantine corridor and Central Asia, he came into cannabis territory that had been growing there for four million years. So it's like, is there a link between, it's like Homo erectus, when you see that plant growing into plateau without any trees and stuff, it's a plant that is very difficult to miss. And it's a plant that gives you medicine, fiber, and nutrition. I mean, imagine, those people were bare-handed, naked, two million years ago when you had predators that were 500 tons animals around, those people, their only resource was nature. Their only mean and tool to survive was to use nature. And how long would it take them to use a cannabis plant? So is there a relation between Homo erectus, Neanderthal, Denisovan, and the Homo sapiens? I think so, because we interbreeded. And if we interbreeded, we had changed cultural data. And so that plant may have well been moved around and be with the genus Homo for the past uh, two million years plus. <laughs> so there's a connection. <laughs> there is a connection. <laughs> uh, briefly, you mentioned the, the term terroir. And also, we know of you being French as well, and that's a concept that comes from France, right? It's it's related to the growing wine and the grapes and the specific attributes of the soil in the different regions and also the names that those regions have, whether it's Burgundy and Saint-Emilion, <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> I understand that you think that there should be also kind of a branding that goes with that so that that's, that's something that could be marketed and owned by the farmers. Am I pushing it too far? No, 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 not at all. It's, it's literally, if the French could, after 8,000 years of mass-producing bad wine without knowing the process of fermentation, they created a tool to, that is dedicated to quality. Basically, this appellation is a dedication to quality. And it starts by a recognition of the quality of a product to be able to go to the place. And it started in the mid-18th century when... Uh, you had all those world trade fair uh, around the world. When it was in Paris, Napoleon the Third asked Bordeaux, the county of Bordeaux, to create a hierarchy of quality of wine in Bordeaux. And that was the beginning. That was uh, the stepping stone. It took 50 years. 
and uh, three movements to actually create this appellation. And it all starts by the recognition of the quality of a product. And it can be a poultry, it can be lavender. Imagine, there is a guy in southern France in the Mecca of lavender. He is not only an appellation d'origine, he's an appellation d'origine controlé. That means that you have an agricultural region. In that agricultural region, you have a terroir. And in that terroir, you're so special that there is nobody in the planet that can create the product that you're creating. That osmosis between nature, human, and cultivar to a level where it, you give it a uniqueness that your neighbor cannot have, even in the, in the make of the production of that product. Like, that's the beauty of it. That's, that's the ultimate definition of a farmer for me. Well, like champagne, for example, right? You can't use that word outside of France with any product, even if it's made in a similar fashion. And that, that's, the, that's the name of the game I want to play in, uh, in Northern California because we have everything in spades that the French industry had, and we have science on top of it to help us. And we have uniqueness that is very, very special that needs to be preserved and a quality that is not fine anywhere. And for the moment, the, the world industry is going big without having the understanding of a world market. There is millennium of production around the world of cannabis. America is a new kid on the block, basically. So you have a quality that is unique. But you're going for quantity because America is big and that's agricultural product you produce in, in quantity. But if you produce quantity, your competition are going to be Lebanon, Morocco, South Africa, all the producing countries that have millennium on top of you. But for millennium, those countries have not produced quality. They have produced only Quantity. There is no country in the world that is dedicated to producing quality. So if the French could create quality for the wine after 8,000 years old and it's still standing and they have been copied by the world over, we well should be able to create a quality that will define the, the future market like the, the wine did for the wine industry. But... We have two choices. Or we literally take the appellation d'origine and we do it the way the French and uh, Europe do it, to the letter. Or we create our own. But if we create our own, the value and the level and the depth of those appellations have to be so high that the rest of the world, when they legalize, will want to use those... Uh, mm -hmm. So it's like it's a, it's the ultimate game because if you want to be relevant in an industry for the next millennium, you cannot do it by quantity. The French, they now, after almost 200 years, they don't produce the most wine. They definitely don't produce the best quality anymore, but they will always be relevant to the game because they actually made that game. Every word, every scoring, every hierarchy is done by, uh, by the French. 
and that I want for the cannabis industry and in, uh, so, in California. So is that in opposition to the corporate cannabis world and you know let's say the idea of craft yeah yeah craft definitely the farming and yeah. you know like we have craft beers with all these different exactly. kinds and in your film that you're involved with Frenchie Dreams of Hashish uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, talk about the difficulties of, that they're having currently. Is that still something that's... It's worse. It's worse? It's worse. Like the French dream of Ashish was the end of 215 and the beginning of Prop 64. Now it's been, it's savage. It's like, how, how can you give so little license in the biggest market in America but give license like uh, croissant in the morning in uh, in Paris to uh, Illinois to all those states where there is no market whatsoever. They give the license for farming like there is no tomorrow. So it's like so you give license in state where there is no market, but you don't give the license in state where there is a huge market that we really really need the farmers. They've made it very difficult in California for the small farmer to actually compete, to participate in the market. There's so many requirements from so many different agencies. Part of it is the price of entry um, can be very prohibitive for these very small farmers. And then some of the requirements in terms of building infrastructure that they are asking the farmers to implement in farms that have been growing already for 60 years has made it impossible for the farmers to to participate. And in some areas, it's just been a very slow process. They've been very slow to actually approve the licenses. So as Frenchie's mentioning, we have some of the best craft cannabis farmers in the world in Northern California who have not been able to participate, whereas in the Central Valley, you know, traditional agricultural areas, mega licenses have been approved by entities with, you know, that are better funded but they're not producing quality product. And in some cases, they're using agricultural land that may have been compromised by previous pesticide use in the past. So it's like Frenchie's suggesting. The government in California needs to look more carefully at the jewel that they have in their northern Emerald Triangle areas and support that to its full potential because it's huge. And at the same time, you know, the underground or the, you know, legacy market is still huge and it's bigger than the legal market. Oh, it's, and it's, because it's they haven't given the, better. the opportunity for it. When you think, I was just reading yesterday on some of it, you know, because we're ha currently having a huge kind of crash of some of the, the larger companies in California because of these barriers and also because of more than anything, the tax structure that they implemented. It's prohibitive to the consumer, and it's also prohibitive to the manufacturer, the farmers, everybody in the, the supply chain. They've created a structure that's just impossible. The margins are so narrow that nobody's successful. Even the bigger companies are, are failing. In a new market like that, I guess it's to be anticipated that there's going to be ups and downs and changes needed, but this is definitely a time and opportunity to reflect on the direction that California is going to go in. Is there any good news there at all? Is anybody making any progress? Uh, well, since this? they're not making money, they're <laughs> thinking about it. The governor is trying to remodel the whole, the whole system. You have, you have farmers that are waiting for their license. So they don't give you a license. It's always uh, on a short time, so yearly, basically. 
But if your license finish in August, you're not going to wait to get your new license before you, uh, you plant. So you're going to plant. When August arrives, you should get your new license. You don't have it yet. And you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and harvest come. You're still waiting for your, uh, for your licensing. You're literally illegal. That means that you can be busted at any time and lose everything that you have while you were trying your best to be legal. It's like, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's totally insane. So it's like, if you really want the end of the drug war and you don't want a black market, well, guess what? That black market has to become white. There is no white market and black market. You want that black market to disappear, you need to take the people from the black market and bring them and make them white. Yes, make them make the black market white by bringing those people into the industry. They actually have the skills and the knowledge, which is a whole other story because these people who are starting these big farms, who they have to go to those people anyway. I mean, who else really knows? You can't just uh, do it overnight. And that's the thing. Also, the the farmer in the Emerald Triangle, they do not know their value. They don't understand that they have a world recognition for quality. They're known the world over for their quality. The only place they're not really recognized is actually California. We could sell our flower anywhere on the planet in a matter of seconds, and we have really a hard time doing it in California because it's sun-grown. That world sun-grown and indoor uh, story. And as a ash maker... I'm like a winemaker. I, I am a promotion of what the fruit, the product that is given to me that represents the region where it comes from. That's my upbringing. When I travel in producing country, nobody really cares much that I made the ash myself. They wanted to know where it comes from. It's always where it comes from. So for me, in a mountain, it's like, Everything that I, I show, it's a gift that I receive from these people. But I'm the only one. Basically, there is 0.1% of anybody that uses the plant, takes the resin and make a product from ash to extract to topical. Nobody gives credit to the farmer. But the farmer do not ask for the credit either. So on one side, they don't understand that if they use the region and the farm, it would be a promotion because it's, it's a world recognition brand. And on the other side, they don't really know their value, so they don't even ask for it. It's just, I mean, for a French, with the culture I've had, I beat my head on the wall all day long because it drives me nuts. Right. I'm uh, not seeing that what's going on. True, what you say, and also makes me think of you know the kind of conflict that they have, because on the one hand they want to be a brand and recognized, but that's a corporate thing, you know, that you need money for, and like brand experts, it's not a growing thing, it's not a farmer thing. Farmers know how to make their product, but they don't know how to turn it into something that's on the on the supermarket shelves with the brand name on the corn that they have grown somewhere in Iowa. So uh, that's, that seems to be like an interesting uh, thing to, to think about. How do you get those small farmers to brand their product so it becomes iconic and then people you know, want it more than just regional, but that it's like the name of the farm is you know, like on the, the wine bottles. You know, you know exactly which farm it came from. And, and 
yeah, but when you go in France, what you want to drink, it's a Bordeaux. You buy a Bordeaux. You don't care which Bordeaux. You buy a Bordeaux. When you have drink half a dozen Bordeaux, you're going to start to think of, huh, I like this one better than this one. And you look at the map of the terroir of Bordeaux, which is an alluvial plain with no geographical point. It's super, super complicated and intricate. Terroir disappear and reappear in different terroirs. It's, uh, it's really pretty intricate. You realize that the value is into the small domain. When people come to California, they want to smoke first what comes from the Emerald Triangle. Once they understand what is the Emerald Triangle, you can make them understand that there is three counties that create that triangle and each have different value. And slowly, slowly, they will come to the farm. So for the farmer, their main branding they are from the Emerald Triangle. That's okay. That's the branding. That's the brand. That's that's what will sell worldwide. Because that's the champagne. Uh-huh. Okay. So, uh, just a, a historic question because I always understood. Uh, what two questions? One is: Is hash legal? It fully in California? Is that something you can buy in the stores uh, and all that? Y- yes, but at the same time, there is a world new story saying that it's not part of the cannabis plant. But that's at the federal level. That's not in California. uh, In California. No, in California, concentrates are legal. And and then the other part is like the hashishim, you know, the story about the assassins and that they would be all like crazy on hash and therefore able to go and and kill people. What's the validity of that story? None. None. Seriously? Seriously. I mean, there were assassins. The the old man of the mountain did exist. He was from a sect that had a a Muslim sect that were really victimized by the the whole Muslim empire. They were small. They had a bunch of uh, fortress in the mountainous region of Iran and Iraq. And because they couldn't kick butt, they were the first terrorist group. They were so dedicated to their religion and their cause that they would infiltrate anywhere, anyone, and kill on order. And they did kill uh, the the first uh, king of Jerusalem, a crusader. They uh, they stopped Saladin, like one of the greatest uh, Muslim general. Uh, he never went against them because. He find a dagger next to his pillow in the morning when we when he wake up. That's all he needed. It's like the they created fear to protect themselves. Then the whole story of eating ashish and the paradise and the garden and stuff. Ah, uh-uh. this is like really desertic mountain. They may have used drugs, but there is nothing concrete on on the story. They were called. Ashishia, Ashishin, that's, that's eater of Ashish. And anybody from the 9th century to the 12th, 15th century in the Muslim empire, to call somebody Ashishia, Ashishin, was like a pig eater, basically. This is one of the worst things you could say to another Muslim. So it doesn't reflect at all the real story of that uh, Sunni sect. Because even even today, people assume that a lot of the fighters, the Arab fighters, that they're high on hashish, and that's what 
Zij drinken, zij drinken, zij drinken. Maar een heel ander, you know, related in some respects, because I remember I had a French friend who, as a journalist, and he worked for Liberation and places like that, and he would uh, spend a lot of time in Lebanon during those days when it was like a Paris of the Middle East. And he did a lot of reporting from there, and he would always tell me that all the wars of that region were, were basically fought over who controls the Bekaa Valley and, and access to the plants. You agree? Oh, but yes. It's like all the, the world war in Lebanon have been paid by, uh, by what they grow in, uh, in the Beka Valley, yeah, and this for millennium. Huh? And it's still a big part of what's happening in the Middle East and that region of the world. And today they say that, um, you know, a lot of the financing of the terrorist, you know, quote, quote, terrorists comes from the drug trade, that they're, instead of oil, whereas they used to be in the oil business, but now they're in the drug business more right. than ever. That's what pays the best, huh? When I was a kid in the seventh year, we smoked we smoked a lot of Lebanese. It was the peak of the of the war, and the Lebanese were exchanging the ash for weapon for German weaponry, and everything like the the south of France and uh, that part of Italy they have been smuggling since they invented ship on the Mediterranean Sea. So everything was coming in Marseille, Nice, that region, before moving to the rest of, uh, of Europe. And everybody, I mean, when I was a kid, everybody knew that it was German weaponry that were buying the ash that was going through our door toward, uh, toward Northern Europe. It was like a, a known fact, at least in the in underworld. Right, so this is a world that you were familiar with in some ways back then, at least. But, uh, I mean, I grew up in it. I uh, I was 17 years old, and that's all I knew. Because I, of your travels and, and... and No, I didn't travel yet, but my best friend were Lebanese, Persian, oh. Moroccan. Uh, that's the people I, uh, I grew up with. And when I started to smoke, well, that's the people I had the most relation with, basically. I have a friend as well, another friend in Paris who's a journalist and has been around for a while. So I was talking to him about legalizing cannabis in, in France or Paris, and uh, he thought it would never happen because so many people make money off it, live off it in the banlieue, in the suburbs, that that's the basic industry for the people there. And if it made it legal, they would have huge uh, unemployment problems. And we already have huge employment <laughs> problems. <laughs> right. Well, let's, you know, but no, I but mean that, that people would take their, their only way of making money away from them. Yeah, but that's what happened in uh, everywhere. Legalization, it's taking the black market away. But now you cannot take it away if you don't transform it. It's very simple. That's the first lesson that the government have to learn. So it's like, it's going to be the same. Who knows what? So what do you think in Paris or any other countries in Europe? Would you think there's going to be any uh, movement in that direction? It looks like Germany is getting close, right? Germany, Portugal. Portugal is, Portugal is totally a free, right? Uh, Luxembourg. Luxembourg, they're going to legalize. Luxembourg, it's a world banking system. We don't care. I mean, I don't care how much they're going to produce or what they're going to produce. We were there for the, their first cannabis event. La. I was talking to the Minister of uh, Tourism and Health, 
And uh, I was telling him, he's like, not only you could ask any breeder to breed for you specific genetic for your country. You know what I mean? Even a small country, it's a big deal. Sure. But at the same time, it's, it's a banking system. If like, give me a bank where I can put my money safely because I do something legal in California. If I have an, uh, uh, a, a Luxembourgeois bank where I can put my money, that's what I would do. I wouldn't put my money in, uh, in American bank when I don't know. Uh, they, don't, they treat me like I'm, I'm still the scum of the world. Well, I'm doing something that is technically speaking, legal, but how legal is something when you have to write on your packaging that you're actually selling a an illegal drug on a legal market? Right. <laughs> and you, you can't take it across the state yeah, and you can't like... It's like me, for me, it sounds very much like racketing by the state of California when the big boy lets somebody do something on his turf It's called racketing in South of France. At least that's how we uh, <laughs> we see it. It's not legalization. Legalization, it's unscheduling. When it's unscheduled, then it will really change. Then there is no every state trying to control and to maximize everything. Then there is competition. Then there is need for quality. Yeah. Then there is need for standing out. And... Already in between the state of California would be huge. Why would you try to grow cannabis in uh, in the state of Nevada when you have some of the best grown in Oregon and California, your, your neighbor? It's like, what do you get the water? It's not only growing uh, cannabis plant. It's, the plant is not only a medicine and psychoactive. The plant is the only natural resource that can actually save the world. Okay, so it's like we need to see it a little bit differently than just medicinal and psychoactive because that plant is a trinity. And the most important one is that natural resource that that plant can bring on the table. And we are growing CBD flower from hemp and leave the fiber and, and stock rot in the field when you can, you can do 28,000 products in eight industries. I'm sorry. It's like that's... That's the whole blah, blah, blah about THC, the, the bad boy, and CBD. It's like, this is pointless. Because even if you make money into CBD flower now, you don't have a tomorrow to spend that money. We should really focus on having a natural resource and changing the way with dealing with the need of the planet. That's the first step we, uh, we have to take when we think of the plant. And that should be actually our first thought about that plant. It, it's the future. We don't have a future if we don't do something with that plant really fast. Well, thank you very much, Frenchy. We had to go all the way from the, you know, 45 minutes to get to the first step. <laughs> and I'm very glad we made it. And Mrs. Cannoli, it was a pleasure to meet you and have your voice in here as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.